0: to break out of samsara, to break out of cyclic existence. And saying that the best kind of body to do this with was a precious human life. uh, Because with this particular body, this particular intelligence that we have as a human being, uh, we have the greatest possibility for generating the realizations of the path. And so our present situation is is really very fortunate and very rare and really excellent. So next time you start complaining about something, (laughs) 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 remind yourself of this. (laughs) And then the path itself to to free us from cyclic existence, the path of ethics, concentration, and wisdom, Wisdom, because that is the thing that actually cuts the ignorance by seeing that the thing that ignorance thinks exists doesn't exist at all. Okay, so wisdom sees that there's no elephant in the room, so you don't need to be afraid of an elephant. Okay, that's why the wisdom is so important, because it's able to see that the inherently existing objects that are ignorance, anger, and attachment grasps onto, don't really exist at all, and so it dissolves as a result those disturbing attitudes. In order to un- to generate wisdom, we need to be able to analyze what exists and what doesn't exist, and we need to be able to hold our attention on whatever conclusion we get. So therefore we need to have some concentration because it's difficult to keep your mind on something when it's roaming all over the place. And if you can't keep your mind steady, then it becomes very difficult to meditate and to hold your mind on the conclusions that you get, as well as to keep your mind even on a a line of reasoning long enough to get to the end of it. And then to have concentration... Which, Because concentration is a mental stability, we need to first develop a stability in our verbal and physical actions, because the mind is much more difficult to control than the body and speech. So if we want to control the mind through concentration, we need to start training with what, you, which is, what is easier, which is, con, you know, doing something about how we speak and act towards others. And so, that is the higher training of ethics. And this is an important thing to remember because again, you know, you see many people who don't want to do ethics but they want to meditate and gain concentration. But how are you going to control the mind and subdue the mind if you can't even do what's easier, which is control the verbal and physical actions? You know, and realizing that, that our verbal and physical things are motivated by the mind and you know it's like first the mind has an intention then we speak then we act so there's this delayed process going on you know so ultimately we have to control the mind but because it's much easier to control what we say and do we start with that and then that having controlled that then we begin to be able to do something with the mind and its motivations and when i say control Mm, this is a real touchy word because in America we think of control as, you know, this person's controlling and I've got to control this, you know, like put a, a noose around and told it and now it's controlled. So the word control, when we talk about controlling our mind, our mind or controlling our actions, it isn't putting a straitjacket on. We have to be real clear about this because... I say this because a lot of our kind of subtle preconceptions about words, they sneak in and influence um, our understanding even though we're not aware of it, okay? So we're not trying to put a straitjacket on our mind. We're not trying to make ourselves so completely tied, you know, more tied up in knots than we already are. (laughs) Control means letting go of the things that tie up our knots or our, you know, so that we can kind of be a little bit peaceful, because our mind's quite tied up in knots already, okay? But So when I say let go of those knots, it doesn't mean act them out and do whatever you want, but the knots of the jealousy and the pride and things like that, to unravel those and untie those, let them go, okay? So it—it it sometimes maybe rather than control the mind or control the speech in the body, you can say, I don't know, manage, of course, manage is another loaded English word, you know. <laughs> so somehow, I mean, you kind of get the feeling of what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? Okay. So then we went from there to go into specifically the higher training of ethics and, you know, that it meant uh, abandoning the, the ten des- destructive actions. And uh, specifically, if you can keep the five lay precepts or the vows of a novice or fully ordained uh, monastic, then that's that's really good, you know, for, keep, for doing the higher training of ethics. And so we began to talk about the advantages of of doing that. And so the first advantage was that we will maintain the Buddhist teachings as a living tradition. So here we discuss how the Buddha at the time... He passed away, said, you know, after I pass away, look at the Pradhamoksha, which is, you know, the Vinaya, the, the discipline, um, management, the subduing of the, of the monastics as, as your teaching. You know, in other words, he was re- really referring to the higher training of ethics as the basic thing to look for, uh, as his teaching after he passed away. And so we, we maintain you know, the Buddha's teachings as a living tradition when we live in ethical conduct. Okay, and then second, we'll have, by keeping ethics, we will become a vessel for holding the Bodhisattva and the Tantric vows. So, the the prati-moksha vows, you know, the five lay precepts or the monks and nuns vows, those are specifically to help tame our body and speech. The bodhisattva vows are specifically to help free ourselves from the um, self-centeredness, so that's taming the mind, and then the tantric vows are to help free us from dual appearance, which is really subtle taming of the mind. Okay, so it's a progressive thing, and so to really kind of be a good vessel, you know, not a leaky one or a punctured one (laughs) or um, an upside-down one, one that can really, you know, hold the Bodhisattva vows or hold the Tantric vows, then it's real good to have trained in the Pratimoksha vows um, beforehand, okay, because they're much easier to keep than the Bodhisattva and the Tantric vows. Again, because the Pratimoksha vows, like your five precepts, they... um, you know, have to do with with body and speech, and whereas the Bodhisattva vows are really with the mind. Okay? Now, again, I'm pointing this out because you'll see many people in America who they don't want to take the five main precepts, but they sure want Bodhisattva and, and especially Tantric vows. You know, let's get, let's collect Tantric initiations and Tantric vows, and you know, they, they don't really have much understanding of what the vows are all about, or, you know, they have they have a weakened capacity to, to hold them because of not having some training in the things which are easier, which are the, like the five precepts. Yeah? So really the, the way to kind of build yourself up so that your practice can kind of grow in an organic way Yes, you know, start with the five precepts. Then, you know, get used to them. Then take the bodhisattva vows and get used to them. And then take the tantric vows and get used to them. Then things, you know, kind of build build up and fill you up in, in a nice, comfortable way. Mm-hmm. From uh, the the vows are designed to help us free ourselves from this dual appearance and from discriminating that, you know, this is contaminated and this is pure, things like that. So mm-hmm. someone These days, it's kind of happening like that, um, I think because many times people come in very excited and they want high practices and the teachers from their side figure, well, better give them, plant some seeds in their mind and give them some karmic connection and then in a few lifetimes it will ripen, yeah. Um, and so I think they they do it, you know, in this way to put seeds in, in people's vows even though, you know, the people aren't properly prepared to to do the actual practice, and to somehow also inspire the people maybe to go back at the beginning. Like if you get something high, then maybe it inspires you to go back at the beginning and do the the, the things so that you can get up to where you thought you were before. <laughs> yeah. So I think it happens like that sometimes. Yeah. So how do you know if you're really hearing about... Because if you take... A want a highest class Tantric initiation, then you'll get the Tantric vows. Okay? So, that, you don't just kind of get vows by sitting somewhere, okay? They're, they're actually given in a ceremony. Yeah, so the Bodhisattva vows are given in a ceremony, or sometimes they're also given when, there's four classes of Tantra. When you take initiation into the lowest two classes, Often you take the bodhisattva vows then, and in the higher two classes, then you take bodhisattva and tantric vows. So you kind of know what you're going to before you go it, and then go to it, and then you can, you know, understand what's what's happening. Okay, that's why I mean it's so nice. Four people today took, took refuge in and, and you know the five precepts, and it's really nice because they're really getting themselves quite well grounded on the path You have to go ahead. Congratulate. okay so also I should say don't be afraid of vows yeah because again we are importing our Judaic Christian meaning here (laughs) aren't we yeah you see this is what's what's really good it's like when we can I start to look at how our mind reacts to the Dharma then instead of thinking it's the Dharma, start looking at what our preconceptions are. Yeah, how come we get so nervous about vows? What is our understanding of vows? Well, in the Jewish tradition, it's what, 618, is what six hundred eighteen? Is it something? You know, the, uh, mitzvah. You know that you're supposed to keep, and then in Christianity, I mean the the. The poverty, chastity, and obedience, and then all the, the vows and, you know, the things in Christianity. And we've somehow in our culture made made everything real heavy in that if you don't keep things, you are a sinner. And you know what happens, to you, if you're a sinner? Yeah? And so we come into Buddhism with this same real tight attitude <coughs> about fear and guilt and failure and not being good enough. And... That that's something we're importing to Buddhism. That's not coming from Buddhism. Okay? So vows are just things to help us. They're guidelines to follow. They're not, nobody's saying, thou shalt not do this. You know, nobody's imposing it on you. Rather, you're saying, hmm, I want to develop my mind. If I keep doing this, I'm not going to be able to grow in the direction I want to grow in. So, I think I better change. Now, you know, what are the, what kinds of ways do I want to change it? And so you look at the vows. and Oh, yeah, these are the kind of things that I want to develop. Yeah? So that you see the vows as, as a companion on the path, as something that's going to help you and aid you and nurture you and free you. Yeah? And again, we take them because we can't keep them purely. Yeah, if we could keep them purely, we don't need them. Yeah, so it's, you know, I I just remember when I, just last week when I was in St. Louis, and at this Catholic high school, you know, one of the kids said, what happens if you break a vow? You know, I'm not sure what he was, you know, if he's expecting me to say, well, you know, hell looks like this. You know, You you, you get a direct metro ticket down there on the express bus, you know. And in Buddhism, you know, what happens if you break a vow? Well, you use it as a tool to look at your own mind and what's happening with you, as a way to understand and improve, and then you do some purification, yeah? So it's a real different attitude. We have to, real really be clear here, not import our old, our old attitudes. And then the third advantage of ethics is that we'll, becoming a livi- we'll become a living example to inspire others. Who, me? <laughs> I'm gonna be an example that inspires others. Inspires them to do what? Eat so. <laughs> chocolate? Oh, that's good. I was inspired that way too. <laughs> And so here, it it is important to give ourselves credit for the vows that we hold, for the precepts or the guidelines that we live according to. Because it does, you know, have an inspiring, uh, influence on other people. Yeah? I mean, like I was saying, I've said before, you know, if the fact that one, that you as one person keeps the precept not to kill, means that every single living being on this planet doesn't have fear for their life, you know. (coughs) If that isn't inspiring, yeah? or if you don't steal, as one person you don't steal, that means five billion human beings and I don't know how many billions and millions of animals and insects, you know, nobody has to worry about their possessions. You know, and so the same with lying and unwise sexual behavior and intoxicants. It just, it, you know, just by, by settling our life down, it becomes a safety mechanism for other people to feel safe around us. Yeah? So we're really contributing to world peace, really contributing to harmony in the society, just by being one person keeping precepts. You know, and so that inspires other people. I mean, it not only makes them feel safe, but it also inspires them to, you know, become like like you. And you can just remember in, in your own evolution, you know, as becoming Dar- Dharma students, what was it that inspired you? What kind of people did you come into contact with that, you know, you said, hmm, yeah. These people seem, oh, I think maybe I'd like to be with them. They have something. Yeah. I've known that, that just, you know, sometimes people who haven't been in our group tend to remember the situation. They were somebody, oh, yeah, um, somebody went to a retreat at Cloud Mountain because they met a couple of people from the group, and these people were so nice that they figured, well, um Gee, if I went, if I went on retreat, I might be kind of nice like them too, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just in lots of ways, just by living ethically, you don't have to try to be an example, but just automatically you become one. One thing is, I think it's real difficult if we try and be a good example to others, because I know whenever I try and be in a good example, it's like, forget it, <laughs> you know. I think, and I, and I was thinking about my teachers, I don't think anybody tries to be a, a, a role model or tries to be a good example, but just by doing your practice, you become one, yeah, and so I think, it's similar in this way, but often again, you know, we don't realize how we benefit others by keeping good ethics or just by being friendly, happy, cheerful people or by welcoming other people. You know, somebody new comes into the group and you're friendly and happy and welcoming and show them around. I mean, just how small things like this of, that show that we're putting the teachings in practice can, can really influence others in many, many ways. I mean just yesterday at the Sunday night group, one woman had you know been sick in in the emergency hospital yesterday and all and then she called um one person in our group who you know just to talk to her, and that person cheered her up and you know convinced her to come <laughs> to to the group last night you know and so just things like that how um you know. Just how we are that can really benefit others. And so it becomes a way, you know, it becomes an example of the teachings. And you look at his holiness and how inspiring he is. Mm -hmm. And what is it that inspires us about his holiness? Yeah, well, you you know, I mean his compassion. The root of compassion is not harmfulness, you know, not harming others, which is ethics. So, it also, you know, it's good to give ourself credit for what we do and to as- aspire to do more because we can see benefits like this that accrue for both ourselves and others. And even when you blow it, even when you, you know, completely, like, demolish your ethics because you totally lost control. <laughs> yeah so that you don't even want to come to Dharma class because you're afraid that there's a big scarlet letter here and everybody's going to see, you know, where was the scarlet letter? Maybe here. I don't know, but, you know, kind of, I blew it. Um, Even sometimes in the process of blowing it and then figuring out why, why we did that, you know. How did we get so confused? What made us do that? What can we... Do to kind of counteract that in the future. Just that process we go through of growing and of purifying inspires other people. Yeah, because then they can see that they can do it too. I mean, look at Milarepa. He he came to the Dharma having killed thirty-five people. I mean, this is no, you know. When you talk about botching it, um, <laughs> you know, killing 35 people is, is pretty heavy karma. And yet he's somebody, you look historically, who's inspired so many people. You know, why? Because he was able to kind of look back at what he did and figure it out and sort it out and purify it and forgive himself and grow. Yeah. So even, you know, in the mistakes we make, there can still be benefit for self and others. Okay, then the, um, the fourth benefit of keeping ethics is that we'll uphold the insight dharma. So we have two kinds, we have like what's called the dharma of insight and um, the dharma of doctrine. Sometimes it's called uh, Realizational Dharma and verbal Dharma, there's there's different ways of translating it. The The Dharma of doctrine are the teachings, you know, kind of the understanding, the intellectual understanding of the teachings and the words of the teachings. And so you uphold those as you study and as you teach. And then the Dharma of insight is the actual practice. And when you, uh, you know, when you abide in ethical conduct, you are practicing, you know, your precepts become that that dharma of insight. And so you're able to uphold that dharma of insight. And it's funny because we sometimes don't think of precepts or vows as insights into the path. And yet they are, aren't they? Yeah? I mean, these are actual things that we're doing, understandings that we're gaining, ways of practicing. So we uphold all those, um, the, the teachings of insight. And this is what makes the Dharma flourish, okay? When the teachings of insight, when the, under, you know, when the realizations of the path, the practice of the path, the integration into our, the light, into our lives of the path, when that is alive in in human beings' consciousness, that's the Dharma flourishing. So building a big, huge temple is not the Dharma flourishing. Yeah, because you can have an enormous temple and millions of dollars spent in statues and stuff, but nobody comes there and nobody keeps precepts. Yeah, and nobody studies. And so when we think of, you know, when we pray for the Buddhist teachings to flourish, You know, the principal way they flourish is by our practice, yeah? And then the temples and the buildings and the statues and all the external things, these are aids and they're tools and they're ways of making it easier. But they aren't the Dharma flourishing in and of themselves. And I really saw this quite clearly, you know, when I was in Singapore. There was one temple there, huge temple. You know, and this temple was so rich, you know, we had a little bitty struggling group, completely poor. It's it's usually this way, you know. <laughs> and then there was this one temple. I mean there were many temples, but there were the one, the largest temple in Singapore. Huge. I mean they had acres and acres of land. Beautiful I mean the prayer room was just enormous and Huge statues and a separate building. I used to go and, and we and lead camps for the university and the, the polytechnic students at this other building. And then they had a another kitchen over here, huge thing, and a monks' quarters and beautiful landscape and a, a pond where you could liberate animals. And you know, I mean, just beautiful place and tons of money. They only had maybe three monks living there, you know, and then the lay people that came mostly came on Sunday to do a little bit of chanting and to give money, you know, but in terms of like people coming, you know, like what you people are doing, really giving your time and coming for teachings on a regular basis and doing regular practice and going to retreats, very few people doing that, you know. And so that always made me feel really sad. They so used to go in the in the main temple room and think, wow, wouldn't it be incredible, you know, have this holiness here, this whole room packed, and you know. And uh, when they did special ceremonies around the Buddha's birthday, lots of people would come. And you know, on Sundays people would come to do a little bit of chanting. But you know, kind of what you people are doing in terms of really learning and understanding and thinking and looking at your own mind and working with the teachings, um, you know, what you're doing is really making the dharma flourish. Mm -hmm. So again, it's important to remember that. It's really something to, you know, to rejoice at. And then the fifth, um, thing to, um, advantage of keeping higher training in ethics is that it's especially beneficial, in this degenerate time okay so times are very degenerate and so they say because of this that um, the comparison of you know holding one precept now versus holding the entire monastic ordination at the time of Buddha the merit you get now from holding one precept is greater Because the times are more degenerate. In other words, at the time of the Buddha, it was real easy to keep precepts. Yeah, I mean, kind of people's minds and the society and the whole atmosphere, it was very easy to practice. And so, you know, kind of you accumulated a lot of merit, but the thing is in the degenerate times when we have so many obstacles, um, both internal and external, when we succeed in keeping even one precept now, it's kind of much more noteworthy and valuable and much more, you know, you you create much more positive potential than somebody who kept the whole ordination at the time of the Buddha. It's really surprising, isn't it? So, it's you know, it's it's real important to remember that and that also to remember that, that you know, keeping even one precept is creates more positive potential, more merit than making offering to all of the Buddhas for eons. Yeah? And this might seem like rather shocking. Well, wh- you know, how, how come keeping one precept is more valuable than, you know, making huge elaborate offerings to all the Buddhas for eons? Because it's much more difficult to keep precepts. And because when you keep precepts, you're really taming your mind. Yeah, you're really taming, you're really working um, with your mind, you're really putting things into practice. So it has a very strong influence of your mind stream.